I was taught that we're never given more than we can handle. And at that point, I had maxed completely out. And I raised the white flag and said, okay, I have now reached the point that I cannot handle anymore. And God intervened. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. That's a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, welcome, Karen. I'm with Karen Bossy today. She is a two-time survivor of multiple bone marrow failure disorders. She's going to explain that in a minute. But she's really here to talk about, uh, We've in the past, we've talked about failure as something that uh, we can control, right? It's a mistake that we've made. It's lack of success. But I think that disease and resiliency to that is a big part of our mission because resiliency is all about failing forward. So, Karen, I want to say welcome. Thank you for being here today. Um, first of all, tell us what what is uh, multiple bone marrow failure disorders? Sure. Well, thanks. And for actually, it's got failure in there, too. Sorry. Right. No, no, it's no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm grateful to be here. So aplastic anemia is the illness that I was diagnosed with twice in my life. And similar to leukemia, which is an excessive amount of white cells produced by your bone marrow, aplastic anemia is conversely your bone marrow not making the blood cells that it needs, white cells, red cells, and platelets. So in that scenario, you are treated to try to stimulate your bone marrow function but if that's not successful, then you receive transplant, or you receive uh, transfusions. Okay. To make sure that you have blood pumping through your body. So, how old were you when you first got diagnosed? First time I was eleven. A little. And that was way before there were bone marrow transplants. They were experimental at that time, and there really was not much treatment. I had a ten percent survival rate. No way. Back then, and. Um, we basically just did everything that we could. I was the first patient in the United States to receive a treatment called ATG, which is horse serum, in from Germany. So I went to Minneapolis with my mom okay. and received that treatment several times and had no success and had many of everything else that there was available to treat me, again, with no success. So at the end, after four years okay. of trying to find something that would make me better, we resulted in three times a week going into the hospital and as an outpatient, right. but having transfusions just so that I had blood, blood coursing through my veins, which if you're not a medical professional, you may not realize that every time you receive a transfusion, similar to like a flu shot where you build up antibodies against that illness, you build up antibodies against the other whatever the other person had in their blood, your body bites it off. So at the end, I wasn't receiving any benefit from those transfusions. In fact, I was having severe allergic reactions. And at 15 and a half, I mm-hmm. said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And so I had to have a conversation with my parents and then later my oncologist, my hematologist oncologist, and let them know that basically if this was living, I was done. Mm-hmm. I had fought the good fight, and yeah. with nothing else left to do, I couldn't continue on this path. By now, I'm in high school, and I'm only getting to go on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And right. So we had the conversation, and my physician agreed that he couldn't blame me. 
And I just had to promise that I would change my mind if things got too bad. So my mom, doing everything that she possibly could, started ramping up the prayers, yeah. taking me to charismatic healing services. More rosaries were said. I was raised Roman Catholic, and she yeah. started pumping me th full of over-the-counter vitamins. Really? And I never received another transfusion again. You're my count slowly me. started to go up. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I know. So at what point did the doctor and you and your mom and dad realize that this was working? It took a couple years. In fact, um, when I graduated from high school, they asked me to stay at the University of Louisville, which is where I was from, Okay, because they weren't sure what the long-term outcome was going to be. But after two years of being in college and not getting sick anymore, my counts continuing to be stable, they allowed me to transfer to another college and have a real-life experience outside of the bubble of mm -hmm. being monitored. So what do you time. attribute it to? So I attribute it to, again, being raised Catholic. I was taught that we're never given more than we can handle. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I had maxed completely out. And I raised the white flag and said, okay, I have now reached the point that I cannot handle anymore. And God intervened. And so the physicians at the time called it a miracle. They called it spontaneous remission, which is all they knew to call it. Right. But then fast forward to where I'm now in my 30s and by the grace of God am pregnant with my first child. Mm -hmm. And at the time of delivery, they did my blood counts and they found out that they were in fact down. And when she was three months old, they diagnosed me with having the illness again. Okay. So uh, the stakes were a lot higher at this point with, you know, newly married and a brand new baby. baby. And my mode of thinking was, I remember it so clear, having had this disease come back, thinking, hmm, I must not have learned my lesson <laughs> the first time. Mm -hmm. Because I also am a firm believer that we're not given challenges and obstacles in our life just because. Yeah. We're given those challenges and op obstacles and seemingly negative situations to learn. Right. And then f when we learn, then we have the obligation to teach. But first I had to do get the learning part down. <laughs> so right. I just proceeded with doing all the things that I knew to do and was shown by my parents to do to manage my condition, meaning not look at myself as a victim, yeah. not have a pity party, continuing with my regular everyday life and do what I needed to do, go to physician appointments, get the treatments that they prescribed, but not let that be my new identity. Mm. I was now... How do you do that, though? With your mind. You make a choice. We make a choice. We, everyone, makes a choice every single day, every moment of the day, how they're going to look at a situation. So and, give... Okay, break that down for me. Okay. Because let's say I, I'm, I don't know how to do that. Especially, let's go to the identity thing because okay. I love that because I think a lot of people get attachment to identity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. How did you do it? What tools did you use? What steps did you take? That's a really good question because it's so innate for me. Yeah. Um, thinking about it, though, I remember the first time, you know, as a child when I got sick, I was just very rebellious. I was active, I played kickball, I played softball, volleyball, all the sports that, you know, a sixth grader plays. And I frankly did not have time 
to be sick. Mm-hmm. So I had to be bribed to go into the hospital by my parents. They lovingly, you know, would buy me gifts if I would agree, as if I really had a choice <laughs> right. to go into the hospital and receive the treatments. But I did not wear the hospital gown. I chose to wear my own pajamas. Oh, I love that. When I was in there, because I was going to do this on my terms. Again, it was a choice. And probably when you say break it down, I think really it was rebellion. And candidly, I've never really thought about why why I did that. I think it's just my nature. Yeah. Uh, I was not going to take my identity as a child, as a rambunctious, active child, and become now this sickly patient. And the reality of it is that when I was, I went to the University of Minnesota Hospital, as I mentioned, for treatment, and I would get up and put on street clothes. And if I wasn't having treatment, I would roam around the hospital. I would sit out in the courtyard with my mom. There was a park that I was allowed to go to. Mm -hmm. And I would do as many normal activities as I possibly could. That's what what I I was just thinking, that normalcy piece. Right. And what I found is that all the patients that that had the same diagnosis as me, because we were all in the same ward, they wore their hospital gown. They sat in their room. They watched the three channels that were available on TV back in the day. Yeah. And sadly, none of them survived. And I attribute that to the fact that they developed this identity of being a patient. And they succumbed to all of the heartache and turmoil and physical consequences of that thinking. And what I've now come to find out so many years later Mm -hmm. is that there's science to prove that that's exactly what happens. Our bodies, our cells and our bodies respond to our thoughts. And so while the first time I was um, overcame the illness, yeah. they called it a miracle, they called it the spontaneous remission, scientists now call it self-induced healing. Okay, didn't know that word, self-induced healing, all right. And neither did I, Sarah, until I was both of these situations were in the rearview mirror for me, and I was trying to figure out why. Why did I overcome these two rare illness or the same illness twice? Yes. When many others didn't. And so I've been a lifelong student, at least for the last 15 years, since I overcame it the second time mm-hmm. when my oldest was born, to try to figure out why. It's not that I'm so much more special than anyone else. There had to be a reason. I knew there was a reason because I was supposed to do something with it. But I needed to know why and how so that I could teach. I learned. Now I need to teach. So what can I teach? How am I going to teach that? And so I started delving into the science behind it. And I have come to learn that it's evidence-based. Again, our bodies, our molecules respond to our thoughts. Okay, so let's say I have a thought. Let's say it's a negative thought. How do I change that thought? You make a different thought. Okay. And I do that still all day long. If I am in traffic, 
which I'm not very good in traffic. Mm-hmm. And if someone cuts me off, I automatically think something negative. There's a name I call that person right. that we don't want to say on air. There, oh, no, we can cuss on air. <laughs> well, either way, easy. it's not pretty. So, you know, right. I have that thought. Sometimes it comes out of my mouth. Sometimes it doesn't. But then I know now to catch myself and say, oh, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Because I really do believe that everything that happens to us is for a higher purpose, to teach us. Okay, so the thought comes up. What if you have that thought over and over and over again? Do you just keep battling it like a Me as a person match? or in general? Yeah. In general. I'm still not good in traffic, and I've been trying to manage it for <laughs> my whole driving life, Yeah, which is longer than I care to uh, announce on air. But um, I still do it. I'm no more different than anyone else. It's just that I have embodied the wisdom enough to know to change it. So if someone, say it's not traffic, someone is rude to me, mm-hmm. someone is not kind, I give them, a, in my mind, I might think something negative, but then I instantly, I know enough to instantly switch it to a thought of compassion yeah. and recognizing that what they're doing is not a response to me. It has something to do with whatever's going on in their world. So if I can treat that situation with compassion, that's what my cells pick up. And that's what keeps me healthy. When your name was brought up for this talk, I was really interested in it because I have a niece who I forget what she was diagnosed with, but um, she had ACL reconstruction and afterwards she was having great pain in her leg, but the, the surgery was successful and they found out Again, I forget the name of this disease, but it's where the brain believes that there's nerve damage, but there's not any actual nerve damage, but the brain has been hardwired to believe it. So if you think of like Civil War days when amputees would Mm -hmm. have the, um, and now I just forgot what it's called, you know, where- Like the ghost. Yes, the ghost pain or whatever, Mm -hmm. but there's no real pain. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So my sister- the doctor was like, I'm really sorry. This is what she has. They were gonna, they sent her to a pain clinic. They did a nerve block. It, it, and then they were like, we can send you to pain management. And my sister's like, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm going to f- help my child figure this out. Mm-hmm. So they went to um, Cleveland Clinic because this disorder that she has, they specialize in it in there. And they taught her. She never talks about her pain threshold. Mm-hmm. It's always what goals did you have set for the day? Because she will, she could likely have this pain the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So I'm not to ask how was the pain today? What was the, the threshold? It's what were your goals today? Um, she, they have to have her basically push through the pain. So exercise up and moving all day long, meditation. And then the most interesting thing to me was um, – Anxiety increases your pain Mm -hmm. threshold or tolerance, tolerance, I guess. And so they taught her cognitive behavioral or um, anxiety um, techniques Mm -hmm. and how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And you know what? She went back to the doctor uh, two months ago, and the doctor was like, she has such significant improvement that I wouldn't be surprised in a couple years if the brain rewired or hardwired it differently so that that pain is gone. That's exactly right. In neuroscience, they talk about the fact that uh, neurons that fire together wire together. Okay, explain that. So our brains have neural pathways in them, and 
we have the ability to change them with our thought. And there are plenty of neuroscientists scientists out there that will report studies and give test, show testimonials and findings that we change the pathways of our brain through many of the things that she did. Meditation, choosing a different thought, yeah. affirmations, because we know that whatever follows an I am statement yes. is what we become. So we've all heard the story about the first grader who a teacher looked down on them and said, you're, you're so bad in math, you'll never be able to do math. And guess yeah. what? They believe that. That person is now an adult who can't do math. Right. Because all day long, subconsciously, they said, I am many things probably, but I can't do math. I am dumb. I am stupid. Whatever that mantra was that they were feeding their subconscious mind. Our subconscious mind runs our body. It what It's what keeps us breathing while you and I are having a conversation in our conscious mind. It what It's what keeps our lungs, you know, inflating and deflating. And it doesn't know reality from non-reality. Mm. It just does what it's told to do. And so if we can feed our subconscious mind with what we want to be true, that's the outcome that we have. Another neuroscience type saying is our personality creates our personal reality. Say it again. Our it's personality good. creates our personal reality. I love that. But when you think about I'm glad you love it because it's so true on so many levels. Whether you're dealing with an illness, whether you're dealing with pain, whether you're dealing with an encounter with another person. Right. And there's so many trite statements that are out there that we don't even give any thought to, like glass half full or half empty. It's how you look at it. That's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Your personality of how you look at that glass or that situation yes. dictates how you view it, which is your reality. Um, I would think that a lot of this can also pertain, this is such a random thought, but I feel like I need to say, can also pertain to marriages and relationships. 100%. So um, I have this great coach, and this is maybe like, I don't know, maybe like five years ago, my mom was, was sick. She was dying, unfortunately. And I... Um, you know, when you're sad about something, you get angry at the people that are closest with you. So, of course, my husband was the brunt of my frustration sure. and anger. Let's just put it that way. And nothing he could do was right. Nothing he could do was right. And my coach was like, okay, here's what you need to start doing. You need to start listing everything that he's doing right. Because mm -hmm. there's no way you're getting out of that hole. And you will just keep going down the hole if you keep focusing on that. And I kind of didn't believe her. But then I did. I started journaling it, not every day, but every couple days, the things that I loved that he did. And it really shifted it. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't an issue with him. No. Oh. It was me. Yes. Yes. Okay. So how else have you seen this? Where have you seen kind of the fruit of this come forth from? Well, for sure in my marriage as well, yeah. right? And I mean, no marriage is always 100% perfect. And so what I do every day is I journal. And similar to what you did, I choose to journal for a couple of reasons. One, 
because I need to erase my chalkboard brain, if you will. Yeah. I need to eliminate whatever is cluttering up my mind, whether it's getting my kids ready for school and the stress of that, a discussion I had with my husband or something I have coming up that I'm thinking about, worried about, anxious about. So I just write and I write and I write and I write and I purge my brain Yes. until it's clear and then I always end with a gratitude list. Okay. And what I think is so interesting about that, m- many things, but let's just use the marriage example because it's so many things we can re- relate to any any relationship really that you have. But because we started with marriage, I might be really frustrated with something that my husband did because let's face it, the women are never at fault, right? <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Clearly uh-huh. it's because they did something wrong. Yes. Dave, so, I hope you heard that. <laughs> that's right. I write and I write and I write about all the things that are frustrating me about that. Yes. And I never have to work to shift immediately into my gratitude list, which always ends up being, I am grateful for my husband, Tom. And it goes back to the I am. Always. Because you said the I am. Yeah. Well, your gratitude list, science will say, and I believe that should always be, I am grateful for... And then you state it. And every time my list, I make my list, it always starts with, I am grateful for my marriage. I am grateful for the opportunity to do this podcast. I am grateful for my house. I Name it. Doesn't yes. matter. But also the act of writing, the pen, the strokes, the movement of your arm reinforces the neural pathways in your brain to produce happiness. Why the writing? Because I've read some stuff about this, mm-hmm. and so I've somewhat heard, but I'd love to hear your take. Because there is research that says the writing makes a difference versus typing. 100%. I'm certainly not a physician, nor am I a scientist. Um, so I wouldn't adequately represent exactly what the findings it, findings are. But I do know that the simple act of going through the motion of writing, seeing it visually with your eyes in black or you know whatever, in ink. Sure. That you've written reinforce reinforce exactly because of all of the senses in our body. Typing it on a keyboard is not the same as the act of the actual writing because yeah. it takes more effort, right, to write it. And yes, so it, it does, and it slows pathways. you down too, doesn't it? And you tend to read it as you go, yeah, as opposed to when you're typing. Yes, I mean Einstein wrote a gratitude list every day. What? Some say up to a hundred times a day. Are you joking? I me? mean, a hundred items a day. No. I didn't know that. It's been around forever. Okay, that's And there's really plenty cool. of science to prove that gratitude journaling increases happiness. It's impossible to be resentful if you're writing a gratitude list. It's impossible to be angry if you're writing a gratitude list. You cannot have two opposing thoughts at the same time. Right. Right. So choose gratitude always. Okay, what else do you do? You do the gratitude list. So the journaling and the gratitude list always. Journaling and um, gratitude list. Okay. Right. Um, being vehemently aware of my thoughts. And if they're negative, then I, do, I, I, I speak to myself all day long. We all do. Yes. We all do. Whether it's we took a wrong turn in traffic and we say, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I missed that turn. Really? You just told yourselves you're stupid. You're negative. Right. There's something negative about you. There's something flawed with you. So change it. No big deal. I'm smart. 
I was just distracted. Do you ever find that sometimes um, you, because I, I work on being aware of my thoughts, <laughs> and then this past week I realized I had a stressful day at work, and I went home and my husband asked me how my day was, and I couldn't even, I didn't even want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I thought, I'm not going to talk about it because I kind of just don't want to put focus on it. You know what I mean? I, honestly, I just wanted to put my head under the covers and ignore it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody gave me some feedback that uh, it probably was better if I had brought it to the light versus stuffing it, not 50 times over, but at least was aware of it. Um, verbalized it, and then released it. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? Because I just wanted to ignore it. Well, of course, of course. Um, I definitely agree with bringing it to the light. My personal way of dealing, it, say if I were in that same scenario, mm-hmm. I would have come inside the house if I even made it that far. I might have done it in my car. Yeah. But I would have purged all those things thoughts, feelings, frustrations that I had about it yes. ahead of time in my journal. That's just my way of doing it because I wouldn't want to, if I was explaining it out loud to say to my husband or someone else, it wouldn't be an adequate representation of what actually happened because I would be choosing my words differently yeah. to protect them. Got it. I don't. Wa- I wouldn't want to transfer that frustration onto my dialogue with them. So I would come in and release it first, then I, that's my way of processing it. Then I have more of a sound mind to be able to say, my day really sucked. Yeah. You know, this happened, this happened, you know, whatever it was, continuing to bring it to the light, it's not, in my mind, it's not continuing to harbor it or, you know, continuing to just feed my body that, but I purged it. And now I can talk about my experience because someone that loves me wants to know about my day. But I can do it in a way that is... Not as emotionally charged or ego-driven. Exactly. Yeah. I just was so upset that I couldn't even... I, I just didn't even... I didn't even think to journal it. I probably That's a really good solution. Um, I just didn't want to look at it. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Of you know course. when you just don't want to look at it? Of course. But, but not looking at it probably makes it worse, doesn't it? Because it's still there. Well, that's what they say. That's what they say. Because otherwise, you'll just, it's going to be there so consciously, right? And your cells are going right. to respond to that. Right. So if you bring it to the light, it can go away. So what do you think about, um, do you think that like when we're sleeping, that the brain processes things too? I believe that 100% to be true. I know that. The scientists believe that to be true, and they do that for a couple of reasons. One, um, it has to do with brainwaves. <clears throat> so you and I are having a dialogue with alpha, beta brainwaves going. There's a process called theta healing, which is getting your body, your brainwaves to a theta level state. What does that mean? What's that mean? It's the state that your mind is in when you're meditating. So okay. it's calm. It's more receptive. It's a fertile ground for new information because when we're operating on alpha or beta, then we're having our egos getting involved and we're considering all the things that we're saying and putting too many factors into it. Okay, wait, maybe we should explain the alpha and the beta too. I wish I could. Okay. Listeners, 
<laughs> we will post what this is because we could add that in some notes around what that is. Totally. Okay. Totally. Um, but I do know that in a theta brainwave state yes. is when healing can occur. Okay. And that's the state that you're in when you're sleeping. Okay. So Sleeping uh, or meditating. And or meditating. Okay. Correct. So when I was in the process of uh, producing self-induced healing the second time that I was diagnosed with this, a coach of mine advised me. She taught me about theta healing, and she advised me that all day long, I was to walk around. Mind you, I had a port in my chest. Yeah. But I was to walk around all day saying, I am in perfect health with the universe. I am in perfect health all day long, all day long, but especially while I was sleeping. Because that's when our body's in repair. Wow. Okay. And that's when our conscious mind is at bay and our subconscious mind takes over with our bodily functions. So if we go to sleep with a mantra that's positive, that's feeding our subconscious mind what we want it to process through the evening. So do you do you jot those down before you go to bed or do you say them before you go to bed? I say them all day long. There, I don't know. It was on Oprah or something and there was one a movie star talking about it. But she, um, before she goes to bed, and I like this, she... Um, envisions how great her day is going to be the next day and why. I kind of liked that. I don't really do it, but not in a like materialistic sense, mm -hmm. more in a peace or, you know, she's going to get, you know, get this not certain task done. But do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. More positive things. Mm -hmm. She's kind of doing the mantra. She absolutely is. Right. Every, it, you know, and, and that's the thing when I lecture um, around the country is I don't ever tell anyone what they're supposed to do because we all have the answer within about what's right for us. So journaling works for me. Yeah. You may have a better way or someone else may have a better way of clearing their brain or being able to purge their negative feelings that they have or... But what if I don't know that yet? So what would some suggestions be? Think about what brings you joy. If walking your dog brings you joy then don't be on your phone when you're walking your dog. Right. Just enjoy being outside, being in nature, listening to the birds. Eastern tradition calls it forest bathing, where it suppresses your stress reactors and improves your general health and well-being. People that like to walk their dogs or take a walk come back and they always feel better than when they left because they've increased their endorphins and they've lowered their stress level. Maybe so, for someone else, it's gardening. Maybe for someone else, it's playing with their children. So, because people, I, I love this concept of finding your joy. I think, though, there's some fun self-discovery that you can do to find that. Because not everybody knows what brings them joy right away. Like, not everybody can say, walking my dog. I mean, of course, they could. I'm, walking their dog is probably an easy one. But you want multiple ways of bringing of course, you joy. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's discovering that it's kind of your own self-adventure. Totally. Wouldn't that be cool if we created a program on how you find your own self-joy? Let's do it. Right? Let's do it. I'm serious. I am too. Listeners, we're not committing to you on that one, <laughs> but um, TBD with Karen and I on that. I think that'd be really cool because I, um, 
there are a lot of things that I'm like, I want to try that. I don't know if I'd like it or not, but I'd like to just discover new things. Why not? Right? You know, the biggest piece I think that holds us back from that is we all seem to be on a hamster wheel, right, of moving to the next event. We're never just taking a breath and pausing. Right. And listening to what it actually is that we need. Because, again, our bodies will tell us what we need. We all know what we need. But we're getting up, we're rushing to work or rushing to, you know, get the kids to school. We're rushing all day to run our errands. We're coming home. We're making dinner. We might flop down in front of the television or whatever we're doing and go to bed. Yeah. We're just mindlessly Mm -hmm. going through our life. We've become human doings, not human beings. So if we pause, take five minutes to just put down the phone, erase social media for five minutes, turn off the TV, everything else, just sit quietly and listen. The answers will come. But many don't take the time to do that. Well... I think this is kind of a wrap because I think that last piece is really good to end on. Um, there are so many things that I want to say more, but we would we might have to do a second episode. I'm That'd not be kidding. great. I would love that. Is there anything last minute that you, not minute, but any thoughts that you haven't shared that you think would be important and you feel compelled to to share? I would just like everyone to, everyone that's listening to appreciate and recognize that they can impact their journey. It's their journey. They can make it what they want it to be, and they can do that with how they think, by choosing their thoughts. And if they don't like what they're thinking, it's like watching television. If you're watching a program and you don't enjoy it, you pick up the remote and you change it. So change the channel of your mind. And reap the benefits. Lights out fantastic. Karen, this was a lot easier than you thought it was going to be, right? 100%. It just goes. It does. It's amazing, isn't it? It I know. It's really nice. I am so grateful to you for the opportunity to talk about my passion and what I know and believe to be true. Thank you. Well, thank you because this is my joy. Perfect. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. 